with uh, little kids of all ages and family pets. It's episode 44 of the Development Hell podcast. Uh, we're actually on a pretty regular schedule, and we're trying to do something every two weeks just to stay in the thick of things. We don't want to have these huge, long hiatuses or hiatus I'm not quite sure what the actual phrase is that, but it's that time again for another podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Harches, grumpy programmer on Twitter. At the other end, uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the right thing I said, chilling and relaxing and maxing. There used to be a whole phrase you could say, I'm chillaxing and maxing from the 1970s or 80s or something. I think I saw it. Like- I think I said like in a black exploitation movie, something like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, episode number forty four. Um, before we get going here, uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors. Sponsors. Oh my god, I'm like I'm this is some, not too good. I'm this is really some, not going I'm well. Doing some weird <laughs> accent. First of all, let's thanks our thank our incredibly long running uh, sponsor, Engine Yard, uh, purveyors of platform as a service. One of the um, you know trailblazers. And if you are into running your code, you can run Ruby. You can run JavaScript. You can run um, PHP. In nice uh, sandboxes that are scalable, um, thereby reducing the complexity of your application by making it so you only have to worry about why the sandbox fails instead of why the whole server failed. So we highly recommend that you check out Engineered stuff. And we also have a new sponsor. We have the uh, folks from Rove, um, Evan uh, Curry and some and Gary Hoke, I think his last name is, who I have met both of them at conferences, a cool bunch of uh, developers. Uh, so they've uh, come on board as a sponsor, and thank you very much to Rove. Uh, we have a little blurb for you. Rove is a hand-picked team of some of the most talented developers in the PHP community. They are a full-service web development firm offering services such as consulting, training, software development, and more. Rove employs some of the most recognized and accomplished experts in the industry to ensure that organizations have access to the talent they need when they need it. And as always, we have um, Paul Reinheimer and his partner Will from uh, Wonder Networks providing us with the bandwidth so people who uh, accidentally stumble into the IRC channel can listen to us live as we talk. Yes. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah. yep. So this week, uh, we have a very special guest, someone that I've met in person. And I'm not, Ed, have you met our guest in person? I have, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. No, okay. no, that's not true. That's not, he wasn't unfor- soul. It yes. wasn't unfortunate at all, uh, uh, I, I yeah. guess. So, so our, our guest, uh, our guest uh, this time out is, uh, Buffalo, New York's favorite Go developer, Patty Foran. How you doing, Patty? I'm all right. I'm actually not Buffalo, New York's property anymore. Well, uh, I know, but that's, I, that's, I, where I, that's where myself. I first, yeah, that's where I first met you in Buffalo. We've had dinner a couple of times when I would, uh, blast down the Queen Elizabeth way and, uh, end up in Buffalo, uh, hanging out at Cinecore. So, yeah, we bumped into each other in that unfortunate city. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Buffalo, Buffalo has its there. charm. It's, uh, it's a very, Buffalo does have its charm. It's I give a, Buffalo a really hard time all the time, but, um, yeah, Buffalo. I think Buffalo is one of those things that really works for people, or really doesn't work for people, and it just really didn't work for I, me for some reason. I can one hundred percent agree. I honestly think that if Buffalo wasn't in the U.S., I would probably move there. Um, relocating my family to the U.S. has a whole bunch of other issues associated with it, but I really I like Buffalo, and it's a uh, I get a very chill vibe when I'm there. I never feel like uh, I never feel stressed out when I go down there, and, uh, and plus some of the hotels are actually pretty baller. They're nice to go to. You just don't like it more than what healthcare and education. I mean, come on, where are your yeah, priorities? Yeah, no, well, you know, you know, the rock and roll lifestyle means uh, I can wipe away my medical problems with hundred dollar bills, so I'm pretty good. Nice. So yeah, so I decided I want to get Patty on the show um, because he's one of the people that I know um, who's spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort into. Uh, using and abusing uh, Google's latest offering to the masses in terms of programming languages, um, Google Go. Um, so. Patty, why don't you uh, tell our awesome listeners a little bit more about yourself? 
let's see. I am. Oh God, I got to count. I am 23 years old. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm a software engineer for an awesome company called Drama Fever. Uh, we're kind of like Netflix, but for international content, like Korean dramas and uh, Spanish telenovelas and stuff like that. Um, but during my day job, I write Go full time, which is really cool. Um, but I also, uh, I'm really just loud and obnoxious on Twitter. That's pretty much what I do when I'm not writing software. This, uh, um, this sounds like an okay Cupid profile. This really, this, I figured that's what this was. I thought you guys, <laughs> like, if, if this isn't to set me up with a date, why are we even here? I don't it's, understand. A good, it's, a, it's a good thing you sent your boyfriend away before you started talking about that. Yeah, that's probably for the best. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's more or less who I am. I don't know. I'm not very special. There's not a whole lot to say about me. Oh, uh, see, this is, this always happens. This is something I want to talk about very, 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 very quickly because this sort of thing comes up all the time. So the self-deprecating humor of developers. So let me tell you all who are listening something about Patty. I, like I said, I have known Patty for a while. I, yes, I have actually met him. So he knows that I'm not. I'm not as big an asshole in person as I am on Twitter. And, Speak um, for yourself. Uh, yeah, and Patty's I mean. about. And Patty's <laughs> actually about the same. Actually, maybe he's a little bit more over the top on Twitter, but it's pretty close. Um, I just don't like the self-deprecation thing. I, I don't see any harm in like. Admitting to yourself and to other people that, yeah, I actually do have a few skills and I kind of know what I'm doing. And so that's why when you say you're not special, dude, you are, you're like, you don't, like I said to this and you didn't believe me because I do happen to troll you on Twitter quite a bit. But, um, one of my favorite people to hang out with when I would go down to Buffalo who I didn't actually directly work with. So, um, well, it's, and I appreciate that, Chris. I really do. Um, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, and I know that denying a compliment is to just like ask for it again, um, yeah. and to like invite further compliments, which I, I guess is a bad thing. But uh, I also feel like I'm a very privileged person, and I have a lot of privilege in that I could go out of college and find a job immediately, which a lot of people my age couldn't do. Um, and I feel like if I don't try to – I would rather err on the side of self-deprecation than I would on the side of egotism, because I feel like it's very easy for me to fall into the trap of being conceited because I've been so fortunate and so lucky in a lot of things. And I would rather fall into the side of, okay – He's being self-deprecating rather than he's being full of himself. Um, so a lot of times when I'm trying to accept a compliment, which is not something I'm good at doing gracefully, I would rather um, fall on the self-deprecating side of that than on the, yeah, of course, I'm awesome. Like, duh. <laughs> that, well, Chris, what he's saying is that we're not all as gauche as you. This is this is true, and I've accepted my gaucheness with my usual level of humility and grace. Uh, so you carry it better than I do. Yeah. So enough about me. Let's talk about my podcast. So, <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So I, I brought Patty on because I wanted to people get a little glimpse um, into Go, and also as a nice segue, um, all three of us are actually going to be at PHP Tech in about three weeks' time. So, and Patty is giving a talk. Unfortunately, he's up against me. So I would actually recommend people, um, people should go see Patty's talk instead of seeing mine because my, I've gone on and on and on about the topic that's in my talk about testing and all oh, you motherfuckers know you should be doing it. So, uh, but what you don't know is how awesome Go is because I actually have written code that is up in production um, using Go. And I think Go is, a, is for a, a developer who's only kind of done, I guess what I jokingly refer to as the dynamic algol, uh, a family of languages, uh, consisting of PHP, Perl, um, JavaScript. So, um, you know, um, curly brackets and semicolons and all that other stuff. If you've only ever really done work with that, um, go try out Go because Go was kind of my first, first introduction to building something for money that had to be compiled. So, um, 
I found it actually quite easy uh, to get going with it. And I just wanted to kind of hear some more from someone that's clearly done way more work with um, Go than the um, approximately 57 lines of Go code that I wrote that is an API endpoint for something. So um, so take it away, Patty. T- tell us about how you like got involved with Go. And and uh, I know you, you spent some time working with Iron.io, and then now you're with the Drama Fever folks. But uh, fill in, the, fill in the, the, the middle stuff that we left out. All right. So, um, back when I was in college, uh, when I was a wee young lad, like two years ago, um, I was writing a piece of software. I wanted to learn how to develop Android applications. Uh, so clearly, uh, Google had just announced or just announced their, uh, Chrome to phone application where you like, you're viewing a web page and you click a button and it pops open on your phone. And you're like magic. And I was like, you know, it'd be really cool is if you could be viewing something on your phone and it just pops open on your browser like magic. And uh, so I was like, you know what? I want to learn how to do Android development. I think I understand sort of how this would work. I didn't actually understand how that would work, but that's another story. Um, so I wrote this Android app in this server backend that would basically, and the Chrome extension to go with it, the Chrome extension would basically pop open a window when you sent it from your phone. And there was some hackery behind it that made this all possible. But uh, I wrote this thing, and I was like, awesome, learning project complete, thumbs up. And then just because, you know, I'm a principled person, by which I mean uh, I really hate it when people, you know, redo code that I've already written, because that seems extremely wasteful to me, I threw it all online as open source. Um, this was very poorly tested. There were no unit tests, Chris. To this day, that open source project still has no tests. Um, but it was something that uh, I just threw online, and thought nothing of it. And then one day my server kind of exploded. I was hosting on app engine, which is like engineered though, not as cool. Cause they're not sponsoring this. Um, and I threw it on there and my server started exploding and life hacker had covered it. So this app kind of gained a life of its own. And I kept continuing development on it, but eventually I kind of outgrew app engine. Um, and I discovered at the time that transferring Python off app engine to self hosting was a very painful thing that basically involved rewriting everything you'd ever written about the project. Um, so at that point I was like, okay, so I need to do another iteration. I'm kind of stuck with app engine for now. Is there any way I can kind of iteratively move off of app engine? Um, and at the same time, go was a new project. Uh, it just been introduced to app engine. So I was like, okay, maybe I can write it in go on app engine and, you know, use the same data store and all that stuff and just kind of move it over the code part of it and everything will be fine. And then later, uh, it'll be easier to transfer the go off the app engine and onto my own standalone servers. Um, and that's really how I got introduced to Go, uh, because the Go runtime was so much, it was very similar between the App Engine server and, you know, your own standalone server. Um, so that's how I got introduced to Go, and it was way back in the early days of the language, uh, probably revision 0.5.6 or something like that, back when they were updating the language weekly. Uh, and I kind of started around with it then. Um, I was kind of toying around with it, but I found I really liked the language. There was... Uh, really like a focus on simplicity and clearness of design um, that I really liked. The we I actually just got back from GopherCon yesterday, which was the first Go conference. We had like 700 people in attendance. Um, and like the entire Go team was there. It was written by Rob Pike, Russ Cox, and like a bunch of the other old guard, um, a bunch of the great people that do uh, computer science and like made Unix possible and stuff like that. Um so a bunch of very bright people that have kind of walked this language design road before. And they're all sitting there talking and they're like, a lot of it is 
we wanted to keep the feature set small because everyone knows features are useful. But if you don't keep the feature set small, then it's not going to be an orthogonal language. And orthogonal orthogonality, which is a really hard word to say, by the way, uh, makes it possible to have, you know, composability. And composability is really one of my favorite uh, concepts about the language. Um, it's the idea that you write small little chunks of code and then you can put them all together, much like a Unix pro or much like Unix tools can be put together. Um, and through this, you compose the solution. You don't build a final solution. You, you build a bunch of little pieces and you compose them together to get this final solution. Um, and it just seemed like a really clean, elegant, simple way to build software for me, uh, that really clicked with how I thought about things. Um, and there are a bunch of features on it. There have been, hundreds of blog posts written about why go is the next big thing or why it's the second coming or whatever. Um, but for me, a lot of it is really just like, it feels like a very designed language and all of it more or less works in the way you would expect it to. Um, I could tell like a hundred stories about this. If you guys, you know, want to know specifics about it, but the kind of overarching premise of it is, is it just tries to keep things simple and it tries to make them work as you would expect them to. Um, right. So it's very simple to get like an idea of how the language works. I did notice that when I was picking up stuff just to figure out how to make this little API endpoint. I found I could just literally do a little bit of searching. Oh, I found a library that does this. Oh, I found a library that does that. And then here's the example. And the example, um, most of them made sense to me as a, uh, I mean, of course, I I, know, I, I shouldn't lie. I do have tons of experience as a programmer. I've been doing this an extremely long time, so most of the most of the concepts are are very familiar to me. Um, I mean, just sometimes the specifics uh, escape me on how to accomplish uh, a task. But um, I did find that same sort of thing, Patty. It, it, things kind of work the way that I would expect them to. Now, some of the stuff is kind of um, different. Like the idea of structs is something they don't exist in PHP, which is where the vast majority of my experience is. And um, the returns, how it's uh, goes goes choice to always return error codes and, and things like that instead of having exceptions and other things that there. I mean, again, if most of your experience is with like web-based languages, a lot of the concepts are kind of different. But again, I, I, I agree with you. Things seem to the code seems to look the way that you would expect it, and I, I think the you know the Go teams to be commended for really having that commitment that we want the core of the language, the core libraries, standard libraries, to be as small as possible and as simple as possible. And if people want to go nuts creating all sorts of stuff that you can add in. Um, go go to it. Uh, what a terrible pun! Now that I think. About it. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Um, they're they're hard to avoid. Yeah, it's with problematic. The, I mean, you could also blame them for giving the language uh, uh, a name that's like almost impossible to Google unless you uh, to search for unless you drop down to searching for GoLang, which I did a lot. Yeah. Because um, I found that really helped me narrow down the narrow down the search results. Um, right. So what was I going to say now? See, I got distracted for a second. No, I don't have magic. The gathering open. I'm I was very distracting. Um, yes, you are. Patty. Was it was it a joke about Gorf? No, well, because we're going to get to that too. Because oh, of, because uh, because of Patty's incredible um, young age. Patty is a young and Ed, Ed and I added together are like the same age as his grandfather or something. I'm sure. Yep. And so we were joking joking that how could he not know about Gorf? He knows who Martin Luther King is. He should know who Gorf is. So, um, yep. for those who don't know, of course, Ed was telling talking about how. Gorf is just a video game from the 1970s, late 70s, early 80s, early 80s, early 80s, so. a bit, probably a ripoff clone of Space Invaders. Um, yeah. But we're not on the we're not on the vintage video game podcast quite yet. Um, so, so your experience with Go, I mean, mostly positive. Have you found there were um, 
<clears throat> did you find there were certain type of tasks you were trying to accomplish with Go um, that Go made more difficult than you thought they should be? Um, I think the only one I've really run across, uh, first of all, a lot of what I do is web development. So like a lot of what I do is like web services and stuff like that. Um, and that's something that Go really excels at. Like it's, it's one of the core uses of the language. So I haven't bumped up to too many walls there just because they're not meant to be there. Um, like I'm using it within like the clearly prescribed path. Um, but one of the things I was doing is I was trying to use it for data munging one day to try and like clear up, clean up my data and get it all in like nice, um, columns and like get it all sanitized and stuff. And, uh, Go is just not what you want to do for that. That's, that's not one of the best use cases for Go because a lot more, uh, a much more flexible language like Python or Ruby would probably be better suited to that kind of task. Um, the other thing is the one thing I would say that Go is probably unsuitable for right now is graphics or anything that needs to run like a GUI that is not HTML. Um, just because there's no sort of library for it, you're going to have a bad time trying to hook into anything. The only thing we've got is the Go QML, Camel, whatever it is, uh, language that Canonical's put together that is actually very good, I've heard. I've not used it personally, but I still think it's a little bit touch and go as to like developing on that outside of Linux. Um, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, not to throw any stones, but I'm not sure Linux has the best GUI development history of all <laughs> no, of the platforms. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, I mean, Go is definitely uh, a tool that they've said is is uh, for use on the server, so we, we shouldn't have to worry too much about people pissing and moaning and trying to get, you know, like you said, creating like desktop apps using Go and, and things like that. Uh, you know, a, a GUI, right. like bring in like GTK bindings or something and create a little GUI with it. Um, right. And, and I, like I said, like you said too, the, the idea that Go is very much built for the web because, you know, Google is using it all over the place, I imagine. Um, and uh, like you said, for web services, it seems a very natural fit as well. One of the interesting things that I, I saw, because, I mean, I do follow a bunch of very diverse people on on Twitter and, and someone that I follow who's big, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Ruby community and, and also has do- started doing stuff with Rust. And um, he was... I know who you're talking yeah, about. He's a great guy. Yeah, Steve, I like- uh, So he talked about how, because I guess RailsConf just happened. and mm-hmm. um, Actually, in the same city, I believe, that GopherCon happened. Oh, cool. So it was in Denver. We actually cool. had... Yeah, there were a bunch of jokes during GopherCon about how, uh, you know, a bunch of Ru- Ruby people were over at GopherCon instead of at RailsConf. Um, <laughs> I believe it was in the same city. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, uh, so we had like, yeah. So we, Steve, we go oh, ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go finish your thing. I was just I, I started rambling too soon before you were done. <laughs> we had the creator of like RVM, um, who was at GopherCon and stuff like that. Like we had a bunch of really popular Ruby people that were at GopherCon. It was just funny because um, it was not the original audience that Go was targeting, and uh, that's somehow the audience that ended up with is like the Python and Ruby developers, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because that's what Steve talked about a little bit. He was saying it's like Go is aiming itself squarely at those Ruby and and um, and Python folks, and uh, it's just interesting as you watch a, a language and a community uh, go through that maturity cycle, which I think seems to have like really sped up, uh, in my opinion. I mean, Ru- I mean, okay, Ruby's been around for a while, but Ruby is like as a mainstream popular thing. I don't know what's the sliding window been five or six years of of it's kind of a, a, been at its peak, and and now people are looking for other solutions, and it's kind of like. Oops, I gotta hit my mic. Um, that with a trend towards uh, more use of JavaScript on client side and side browsers, that the 
you, the good pairing now is like web services that are cranking out JSON or XML or some other format that's uh, parsable, easily parsable by libraries, and that you know a lot of JavaScript on the front, and and then things like Go at the back. And and Steve correctly pointed out that don't get complacent, Ruby folks, that thinking that Ruby's always going to be there and always going to be super popular. That um, Go is coming, <laughs> Go is coming for you, and Go is trying to get Rubyists and other people to look at it and say, hey, we can do all this stuff that Ruby can do, and we're actually more suited for the future with that's heavy on JavaScript, and you want web services um, on the server side. And I, I, I found that interesting that Steve would talk about that. Yeah, um, Steve is actually a really interesting guy, um, but. One of the things that uh, I've heard recently and I guess have been more receptive to recently uh, is that I like to hate on like Ruby a lot. Um, and partially it's because I had bad experiences with Ruby uh, during one of my own employment careers. Um, but the, I, I don't actually feel that strongly about Ruby. I feel like there is a place for Ruby. I wouldn't say that at least I'm not gunning for Ruby. I'm not trying to convince anyone to stop writing Ruby and start writing Go instead and make that wholesale switch. I would just say, you know, here's here's another tool for your belt. Um, but no, I think that Ruby definitely has strong points that Go just does not. But I would also argue that Go has strong points that Ruby does not. And it would be more of a tool for the task kind of situation than, you know, Ruby, we're trying to eliminate it so there's never going to be a Ruby job ever. I can't speak for the Go team. I feel like they're probably not gunning to replace an open source piece of software with another open source piece of software. It feels like a very poor use of their time. But um, yeah, and Steve talked about Steve and I talked about that sim, uh, same concept on Twitter a bit because uh, I believe I know the tweet you're talking about. But um, yeah, so I just want to kind of clarify there. I don't think that there are a lot of jokes in the Go community about other languages like Python or Ruby that people have left behind. But I think it's almost a form of banter. It's more of a um, hey, remember you know how terrible life used to be when we were deploying into you know an environment that the dependencies had to live in. And sometimes you had conflicting dependencies and remember like you had to manage those multiple environments. Remember how terrible that was. Yeah. Now we get to these binaries. Life is great. Um, and it was kind of that shared bonding, but, uh, I don't think anyone really is like, yeah, Python and Ruby are terrible. I can't believe we used to write in that. Um, I'm not sure that's the sentiment I was seeing at least no, from no, the no, 750. Well, I guess the Rails people are still uh, busy concerning themselves with shitting all over um, PHP still from what I heard. But anyway, that's a never-ending cycle of P- I mean, PHP, being like- the, PHP being the, uh, um, the red-headed stepchild of the internet, so to speak. So, so we talked about ghost. So another thing that, uh, Patty and I have in common is writing books. Um, I haven't written, well, two, well, really three, but only two that most people know about. I wrote a, uh, refactoring PHP with cake, with using cake PHP, a web framework book a long time ago. I don't even think I have the source. I don't even, I don't even think I have like the files if I wanted to edit it. I, th- I think I just have the PDF, the final copy of it, but you wrote a book as well. Talk to, the talk process to, of writing a book. I'm oh, doing it on LeanPub, so I've released right. it. We've got like 400 readers or something at this point. Cool. But um, it's a book called Your API is Bad and You Should Feel Bad. Um, and it's a book about API design. Uh, and I kind of tongue-in-cheek called it Your API is Bad um, because I had a lot of – I was a developer evangelist for Iron.io, so I wrote against a lot of APIs and did a lot of integrations and stuff. Um, and universally, there's always something that just makes me slam my head against the wall and go, you've got to be kidding me. Did nobody think this through when they were writing this API? 
Um, because a lot of times, like when you get an error back from an API or whatever, it's all it says is like 400 bad requests. And you're like, well, thanks. That's helpful. Um, and it's almost as if the API is telling you your request is bad and you should feel bad. Uh, <laughs> so my response has always been your API is bad and you should feel bad. Um, so I'm writing this book and it's basically, uh, a collection of chapters divided around like a subject like error handling or authentication or request structure or response structure or something like that. Um, and it tries to catalog all of these bad API decisions that I've uh, encountered that I don't really even think are decisions. It's not like my opinion is different from someone else's on what an API should look like. It's just that nobody actually thought about designing this. It's just something that sort of happened because nobody paid attention to it. And it's really frustrating as a developer to encounter that kind of API. So I wrote, um, I'm trying to write a book cataloging these so that when other people are developing their APIs, they've got a nice handy list of things that they need to think about so that you know, when somebody goes to request it, they're not serving back just your request is bad and you should feel bad. They're giving them, oh, here's the cause of your error. Here's what you need to fix. And, you know, um, like one of my main tenants is that every error should have one and only one cause. And it should uh, give the user enough information that there's only one possible fix. It should suggest the next step forward to them. Um, so it's like one of the things I'm trying to convey here is that if you're not doing that with your errors, your errors are functionally useless because all you're saying is it's bad. Try again. Um, so this is a case of where like with all that work you've did as the evangelist at iron IO and figuring out how to integrate with all these APIs, you, you kind of noticed that pattern of like similar, um, similar mistakes being made or similar patterns of how APIs, I, I, maybe mistakes, not the correct word. It's more like similar, um, similar behaviors that you noticed that perhaps were providing suboptimal um, responses and, and just making it difficult to, I mean, we've all run into APIs that do things horribly. I mean, with all the talk of restful APIs, so many APIs are still just basically remote procedure call uh, APIs where you're just sending some message and you're getting something back and they don't really respect too much, whether you're using get or whether you're using post and, and looking for uh, accept headers and all, all the other stuff that if you're trying to craft uh, an, an API, that's, I mean, if we look at this from the RESTful point of view, an actual RESTful API, there's a whole range of things you need to think about. And the truth is very few people think about them. I know I've whipped APIs together that are just simply remote procedure calls. Make a call to this URL and I send you back a bunch of JSON and I don't worry about uh, worry about the ramifications of, of whether I've done it correctly or not. Right. And there are like, if you're trying to use a client from a compiled language to a dynamic language, things are very different. Like if you have polymorphism in your APIs, it's going to be very hard to use that as a statically typed client library because you need to unmarshal each of those requ like responses differently, for example. But one of the things I'm trying really hard in this book to avoid, and I'm not 100% successful because I don't like pointing out problems without trying to offer solutions. I'm trying very hard to avoid saying, here's what a good API looks like, because I'm not convinced there is such a thing as one true good API, and like you can describe what that looks like without fail. I think it's very much a situational, case-by-case, -case, um, what-you-need kind of thing. Um, so in this case, I'm trying to steer them away from all of the wrong paths that are going to lead to user frustration and point out those kind of use cases. Um, instead of trying to set them on the right path, because I'm not 100% convinced there is a right path. 
So, Ed, I mean, an effective kin, are you guys big on the web services, writing little tiny um, – actually, that's an interesting question, too, for you, Patty. Like, when, when you're building architectures for applications, and uh, are you a believer, like, in the microservice um, approach where you have all these little programs acting as um, endpoints and you're trying to keep everything small and, and single-purpose, or are you a big proponent of, like uh, – big humongous API endpoints where every single request is going to be run through the same, in this case, a Go binary, or if you're doing your stuff in Python or whatever, that it, it, it's all part of one one singular monolithic app that's handling all the API requests. What about Ed? Ed, can you, can you talk about what, uh, yeah. what, uh, what, how fictive can approaches like web services and stuff like that? Yeah, I think in all of our cases uh, and, and we write APIs for pretty much all of our applications. So, um, we sort of do an API first kind of approach. And, uh, even if the, like the main consumer of that or the only consumer of it is a, just another web application. Um, but in most cases, um, everything is run through one application and that would do everything. But, um, but I think you, I think it sort of is sensible because it's like, well, you have one application and all that stuff is in the same database or something like that, or, you know, it's all similar kinds of stuff. Um, uh, we would have some cases where things are, might be broken out. Um, like we have a system, uh, we have a web service that basically that we wrote internally that, uh, caches and, uh, like does transforms and things like that on images. So it does resizing and cropping and stuff like that. And you pass it stuff and you pass a uh, URL and, uh, and with some commands embedded in the URL path and it spits out the image on a CDN, uh, for you if it hasn't done that before. And if it has done it before, it just gives you the CDN right away, the CDN URL. And, uh, I mean, something like that, we're not going to, that doesn't pass through the same API. Um, I don't know if it would be monolithic, uh, in the sense that, um, you know, I I think in, typically we tend to write, I, I would say, somewhat larger applications than that. We don't have like a bunch of tiny little things running together. Uh, so yeah, I, I would I would I would say we don't like really really try to sit it down, but I think we try to classify things in a sensible way. Um, but also, there's a lot of pragmatism given to what you know makes the most sense if it's. You know, if it's if it's really heavy to pass something through one thing and then it's just going out to another service, we're not going to write it all in that one thing. Uh, so, did I don't know if that made any sense? Oh, but that's I, what I, no, I, I think it does. I think it does because I'm just I'm wondering as again with this move towards a more API centric and and the the switch over from having all in one solutions to with, with the rise of JavaScript and the um, maturing and creation of tools, making it easier for developers to create client side JavaScript. That's actually impactful and can make, uh, you know, make the appropriate uh, Ajax calls to pull data in and stuff. I mean, I know this has been around for a while, but now it just seems it's snowballing and getting a lot of momentum. And now there's some really powerful tools to let you, um, get some structure to your JavaScript code. Whereas it used to be maybe a little bit willy nilly. You're doing a lot of jQuery and, uh, you know, binding it all together yourself. And, and now there's things like backbone and angular and, 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 you know, if probably a few diehards just using plain old vanilla JS, but, um, uh, 
as APIs become more and more important as a way, especially because we have mobile, mobile, and you know now you have desktop apps and the corresponding mobile app, and it kind of makes no sense to create separate backends for them. So people have to be aware of API stuff, and I, I just find it interesting. I mean, I'm me personally, I'm a fan of of wanting to do little little singular endpoints for thing, uh, single purpose ones, because I just think it's um, the, the idea of the microservice architecture um, appeals to me for a reason I can't figure out. Um, but it, because maybe in, to my brain, it kind of makes sense. Um, makes sense to like, let's separate all these things out um, as much as possible. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and therefore maintenance gets a little bit easier. And if we need to replace uh, a certain a certain endpoint with something else for whatever reason, um, it strikes me as it will probably be a, a little bit easier. And I can talk a little bit more about the microservice architecture later on um, in a more of a freeform discussion. So, so Patty, would you say like at, at, at Drama Fever, the the uh, you're going with the more larger API endpoints, or are you, are you like cranking out a go pro, uh, you know a go binary for uh, a particular service that you guys want to want to offer as, as as part of your architecture? Uh, we're actually coming from a Django monolithic like application, and we're breaking it apart into a bunch of Go binaries. Um, so we're trying to move to the more mono- or to the more microservice kind of architecture. Um, I definitely prefer the microservice architecture, and I'm probably biased in this um, in an unfair way. I would say that microservices, their major drawback is that it takes longer to develop like a workable. Um, if you're going to develop them orthogonally, at least, then it's going to take longer to develop like a usable thing to put in front of users. Where if you're going to boot or if you're going to uh, scaffold off of Django or Rails or something like that, you're going to get something up really quickly. Uh, microservices, it's a little bit harder to do that. But the microservices I found scale better, and almost exclusively, my entire career has been spent taking these monolithic jail, uh, Django and Rails applications and breaking them apart into these microservices because they scaled to the point where they're breaking and they they can't do it anymore. Um, so now they need to be microservices or there's just no other way to grow. Um, so I'm really biased in favor of microservices. Everything that I write tries to be a microservice. Um, microservice is a little bit loaded. It's a matter of where you draw the line at what one thing is. Um, for example, one of my current projects, I just realized like a week ago really should have been like three microservices, but instead it's this one bigger service that's still not a full monolithic app, but should have been smaller. Um, so sometimes it's hard to kind of, it's, it's not a black or white issue of, yeah, I'm going to make something that's monolithic or microservice. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of pragmatism and judgment on where to draw the line. And I'm still kind of trying to hone that skill. Can't can't think of anything wrong with that approach. It, it is interesting that um, it, it's interesting that you, you end up spending a lot of time doing that sort of stuff because it, it's kind of natural. This is kind of like the downside of of the um, of the full stack framework that mm-hmm. it allows you to create something um, usable quite quickly. And then you're right; you get to a point where you can't scale this thing anymore, or you know, I can't handle the number of requests, or the requirements have changed, and now someone's got to come in and. Uh, um, with the the right uh, level of domain expertise and start uh, teasing things apart and so well we can move this into its own little app and we can move this into its own app and we can consolidate these two things into one um, it's interesting and one of the things I find in my experience is having, having worked for like a year and a half for a company that's been around for 15 years that um, very few projects end up with a long enough life that that sort of move to refactor um, 
ever happens and also if it ever really gets the benefits. I mean, you need to have something pretty long running if that you've invested that initial, I don't know, let's call it 12 months to crank out a Django app. Um, and it has API portions to it. And uh, now it's become, uh, it, it's it's a success in the good way that it's, it's all, um, you know, it's like we actually have to make this thing work properly. And now you're at the point where you're like, okay, now we can take this and do all the things that we want to do in the first place. And it just seems to me, uh, of course, this goes along with my, um, my built-in um, distrust of startups having worked for four of them and watched almost well, all of them except one blow up spectacularly. So um, I find it interesting that you've been able to get to that point where you have something working and now you actually have some time, um, relatively speaking, to go back and um, fix the sins of the fathers, as it were, and uh, get this thing working the way that it's supposed to work. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting perspective. Um, and I'm trying to I'm really vocally passionate about not using frameworks. Uh, I feel like it is throwing good time after bad. Um, but I understand that it makes things quicker to develop. But right now I see a whole bunch of stuff being developed really quickly and none of it really staying around very long. So I feel like we're just kind of treading water with technology almost where it's, it's really hard to point to something that's like, yeah, that's, that was built on a framework and look, it's huge today. Um, so at that point, I feel like you're just, I don't know. I understand that on the lean perspective, um, it's a good idea to get something usable in front of your customers real quick and prove it. Um, but on the other hand, I see a lot of half baked ideas thrown in front of customers really quick and they're like, look, it's a lean. And I'm like, no, it's just bad. (laughs) Um, so I, I, I'm trying to temper my uh, bias on that perspective yeah. still, but Ed, have you seen that sort of pattern? You know, like what I'm talking about, where where people they you know they put in the big rush to get the app working, and then and then once it's been proven and it's somewhat successful, now is the time to actually go into the real work of of keeping a thing up and running while you fix all the stupid mistakes that you made um, uh, the first time through. I mean, I've seen this pattern repeated multiple times, so I'm wondering if yeah. I, I mean, is is it I mean, do you think this maybe is just this is just something that's um, unavoidable given the tendency of people to uh, that with the idea of the as Patty called the lean startup, the idea that you want to get to something the the minimum working thing that you feel comfortable um, displays the idea that you have, and that people will go all hell bent just to get something working to provide the barest amount of proof, and then the real work of actually uh, on the technology side of making this thing work at a level that your customers and users are, are, are going to uh, expect from it. Do you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm starting to see a trend, and I'm wondering if I can't be the only one that notices this no, pattern no, no. happening. Uh, yeah, I mean. Uh... I, I, my experience has been so far that usually, uh, I, well, I guess it depends a lot. I think that, um, when you're building a property, like some kind of thing that you want people to use, um, you get sort of one chance to build it. And, uh, my experience so far has been that lots of things end up either not going anywhere or they're not worth putting the time into anymore to keep up to actually fix potential, you know, bugaboos or, or pain points in it. Um, so I think it's pretty typical that you spend, um, uh, you, you kind of get one chance to build something. I think it's, I think it's a little bit rare, 
in my experience, not a little bit rare. I would say it's rare that you get a chance to go back and um, fix something, uh, except on a very small level, like to the potential to do say, hey, you know what? We're just going to get this thing working and then we're going to go back and do a rewrite like two years from now or something. Uh, it is unlikely that that will happen. What usually happens is this one, um, the business no longer exists in two years or the product never, no longer exists in two years. Uh, the second possibility is that it exists, but there is no really great motivation to rewrite it because it works. Okay. And at the end of the, I can kind of understand that because at the end of the day, um, it depends on who's it's trying to serve, especially if it's serving, say, end users in some way. If it works okay for them, they don't really give a shit about how it was built. Oh, for sure, for so, sure. So, I mean, that's a that's a thing that um, you know, it depends a lot on. Now, if you're building a service that say other developers interact with, and what are their pain points, and is what you are the choices that you made causing them difficulty. Uh, well, maybe in that case, it's they're the customers on there and maybe they notice those things kind of more. Um, I, it just, you know, so there's different circumstances, but I, I think the majority of situations that I've run into, um, it's, I would say I've only gotten to really do like, Hey, I'm going to revisit this and really do it right this time. I would say like five to 10% of the things that I've gotten to work on have been like that. Uh, that I've ever gotten a chance really to do that. Anything other than small fixes. So, but that's a, that is, for example, a reason why I'm kind of with Patty that, um, when he talks about frameworks, I'm, I maybe am substituting my own biases in there and saying he probably means things like big full stack frameworks like Django, Rails, you know, uh, Symphony, uh, Laravel, stuff like that. Right. And, yeah. and I don't build in those things kind of for those reasons. Um, but, uh, there's, you know, there's some appeal to that and there's certainly been applications that have been successful and you build stuff for them and that's fine. But I, I don't, you know, because I don't really like working with that kind of stuff, but yeah, anyway, you go ahead. I'm sorry. I was interrupting. Uh, someone, sorry, someone's print. I think my kid's printing something for school in my office while we're, uh, Oh, it's so loud. The, the printer uh. just fired up. That's so unprofessional. I am leaving. I know, right? That's it. That's, That's the out. End. We're out. Oh, Patty, uh, what were you going to say? I'm sorry. Uh, no, not at all. Um, I've actually forgotten at this point. It's something about printing, I'm sure. Um, no, I, printing I agree frameworks. with you more or less. Um, yeah, it's it's gone now. The thought vanished uh, like so many of my thoughts do. Um, well, I'm interested. It kind of goes in a little bit with, you know, you had a you have a still running project that you did, uh, like what, four years ago? Something well, like that. Yeah. It was released the cloud. in, yeah, it was and, released in uh, 2010. So. Yeah. And it's still, it's still going on. And, you know, I, some of the stuff that we talked about kind of sounds like a little bit like where you have this, you know, a project that you're still maintaining, but you have not had a chance, you know, or maybe an opportunity to rewrite. And I, or maybe you have, I don't know, but I'd be interested to hear that because I think that kind of dovetail a little bit with, uh, with our discussion here. Um, um, yeah. Okay. How did that, how did that get started that to cloud project? That was actually the project project I was talking about earlier that led me into go. Um, it was that project right. that I wrote in college that, uh, to just learn Android and life hacker covered it and wired reviewed it. And everyone thought it was great. 
um, which is really flattering because I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and it caused me a lot of problems with my servers going down and people were very generous and, you know, donating money to it. It's always been a free open source application. Um, and, uh, a few years ago I decided, yeah, I know, geez, it's been a few years, a few years ago, I decided I was going to rewrite it and go. Um, and to this day, I'm actually still working on that rewrite, uh, quote unquote. So saying I support it is a little bit um, of an exaggeration at this point, I guess. Right. I try and answer support requests, but people still use it to this day, and I still pay for the servers and everything. So I guess to that extent, I still support it. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's. I didn't really know what I was doing with that software. Uh, my original algorithm for it was uh, the Android app would post a link and it would get saved in a database. And then you would use a Git request from the Chrome extension every 10 seconds that would check an endpoint and that endpoint would load up the latest link. And if it was different from the last link it saw, then it would open the page. And it's amazing that this did not scale past Lifehacker's original <laughs> coverage of it. <laughs> but uh, what, yeah, I, I'm curious. What did you end up doing? Like, what did, what did you, how to, like, what is the approach that you took to handle that? Uh, Google actually fortuitously came out with an X with a, uh, channels implementation, which I'll talk about a little bit. We were very fortunate in that, but, um, I started rewriting it actually in Node.js. This was when Node.js was like the new thing and WebSockets had come out because basically what I wanted to do was hold a connection between the server and the browser. Right. Um, and just keep that open and shove links down it as they came in. Um, and WebSockets seemed like a good, int- uh, good way to do that. Um, turns out there's a, Thing called server sent events or event source, which is um, an even better suited uh, implementation for that task now. But um, so I started writing in Node.js, and then App Engine approached us or approached me actually, and they're like, "Hey, we've got this new thing. Uh, I saw what you were working on. It looked like it may be helpful." So it was called the Channel API, and we were actually like the tenth people outside of Google to actually use this API and help them test it and. Uh, refine it and stuff. And if you've ever opened an API or a channel from a Chrome extension to an App Engine server, that is actually my fault. Um, I'm the yeah. reason that's allowed uh, because they originally shut that down halfway through developing this. And I talked to the developer and I was like, listen, like, you know, what happened there? And it was like, oh, we just forgot about that. Uh, it was something about <laughs> they were limiting like the protocol you could use. So you could use, they had HTTP, HTTP or HTTPS that could ref- be a referrer for this. But my mm-hmm. referrer was the Chrome extension um, protocol. So they just forgot to include that. Um, nice. So yeah, I panicked because it broke on all my users and I got like thousands of people uh, talking to me about it and they fixed it for me, which was very nice of them. The guy that I was working with, Moishe Latvin, has been, he's amazing. He's at Etsy now, but he was like one of my mentors and he's a great guy. Um, I'm very fortunate to know him. But uh, yeah, so it's it's code that I'm decidedly embarrassed of because a lot of it hasn't been updated since, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and the API is terrible. Uh, none of it makes sense, but the disconcerting thing is that like a lot of time when I'm interviewing for jobs or something, like I was talking to, you know, like the director of engineering at Tumblr or something while I was talking to them about an API position. Um, and we were just walking through line by line, this application I'd written years ago, but hadn't touched again. Um, and I was just like, Oh God, facepalm. I don't understand why I did that there. That's stupid. That makes no sense. Um, and it was just like the most embarrassing scenario for me because there's this person that i really respect that's like very intelligent that's one of like the 
at the forefront of our industry. And here's this code that I wrote while I was in college between, you know, English classes. And it makes no sense. Like, it's just horrible code. Um, but it's always the code people ask to see. So, like, there's an interesting tension there um, about this code that I'm ashamed of, but is also my proudest achievement. I don't know, Patty. It kind of seems to me the, the 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 lesson to be learned from this is that you know how to you know at the nuts and bolts level how to build something like this. I mean, is the code might the code be suboptimal um, now because you understand how to do it in a more elegant way? Sure, but the simple fact of the matter is, like what you built worked and solved the problem for tons of people. And I don't see any. I don't. Uh, I don't see the point personally in feeling shame about that. I mean, one of the things we as developers Developers tend to focus on is that we believe the beauty of the solution of what it actually looks like internally matters. And for the people that use, unless you are building a tool for and for other developers, um, like Ed so succinctly said earlier, they don't give a shit what you built it with. They just care that the thing um, that the thing works. And as many times as developers, we forget this. We fetishize the tech, and um, we forget that we're supposed to be building something that other people. Um, find useful and their opinions of what we've built probably matters way more than um, whether our code looks good and whether it's commented and, and I mean all those issues are just like surrounding making the developers happy and making sure that we're all marching together um, to providing the solutions that the business has asked us to do but really the what the users think of what you've done is the thing that matters. Yeah, I would agree with that totally. But um, I think there's something to be said for fetishizing the tech because it makes it easier to update and change and refactor and do things with the tech um, to expand it and make it grow and help the project continue on. Um, that I think that you don't get that if you just write it specifically for here's the what the end user wants, what's the quickest route from here to there. I think you need to make it maintainable as well because, like for example, I still get you know help requests because my software doesn't work. It's actually it's really embarrassing. Um, when Samsung's quality assurance team starts emailing you to let you know there are bugs in your Android app, which I've gotten two of these emails in the last week, when Samsung is emailing to tell you your software is buggy, um, you've had a pretty new low as far as I'm concerned as a developer. Yeah. Like that is, that is bad. Um, my software is really buggy and I think that's what I'm ashamed of. I'm embarrassed of all of the users that have come to me and said, this isn't working for me. Why is this not working? Um, and I, I have to tell them, I don't know because I didn't bother, you know, putting enough logging in because I didn't do test driven development because I don't have that, um, software quality that should be there in a product that so many people use. Um, so I do definitely agree with you that, you know, if we're going to get into language wars over whether or not we should have tabs or spaces or where the semicolons go or what have you, then I'm absolutely with you on it doesn't really matter. But when it gets to the point when users are coming to me and saying your software is not working or why does your software make me feel dumb, that is the point where I start really feeling bad about it because I never I feel like I'm building tools for people, and if people feel like the tools aren't working because they're too stupid, I'm doing them a disservice. Well, I, I, I am I scaring them away. Yeah, I agree with you on that point too. I mean, that's that's clearly like I was saying. You clearly got the feedback that what you built, where while it was working for some people, but there were many people that were having a humongous problem with it. So um, that that's good. Like you know, I, I, I think as I get as I get older and a little bit grumpier about these things, these uh, themes, I I keep 
seeing pro, you know come up all the time um it's kind of like i'm slowly shifting towards the understand that the people that you the the opinions of the people that use your stuff unless you're building something unless you're building something for other developers they're not going to care um one iota whether you're using node or using php or you know if you're using fortran right. and cobol or, or assembly or whatever or dot net or whatever tool um that you've chosen that the the end results matter in making the users of your software happy um, matters. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I know this sounds kind of funny coming from a guy that's big on testing, but it, it's like uh, the, if the energy goes more into the quality of the work that we're doing, as opposed to deciding which of these tools is going to give me um, a better standing amongst my peers, then maybe a lot more stuff that's out on the internet would be better. Right. Um, but speaking to testing, like I know my users wish I had tests because there was a week that I released software that broke, like the software opened tabs in people's browsers on their computers. That's a very personal and very intimate, like trust to be given by your users. And I tried to handle that carefully, but there were, there was a release where tabs would just keep opening for these users. And I couldn't figure out why, like a massive amount of users just had tabs opening on their windows, sometimes with links they sent to their windows, sometimes with random links. And it was a very, um, it was a nightmarish scenario for me because that was exactly what I did not want. I was like betraying this trust they had given me. Um, but yeah, if I had tests that wouldn't have happened, it took me like four or five, like sleepless days of going to class and doing homework and trying to fix this that uh before i finally got it resolved but i that is one of the things that every time i'm like oh i'll ship it without tests it'll be fine i remember that week and i'm like oh god it won't be fine everything will break and it'll be horrible and you'll hate it and you're gonna be so sorry if you do this without like having some way of verifying that what you did actually works oh patty it warms my heart to hear you talk like that Oh, <laughs> wanting to have tests and understanding when you've fallen down I can on the job. Bring some that. warmth it's, to that ice cold Kanucky. Well, <laughs> um, I know I talk uh, so we can because we're talking about the various things that we promote. We can segue a little bit into um, the fact that we're going to be at PHP Tech, and um, so I wanted to ask you, but like my talk, I'm doing my. Uh, I'm not doing my usual talk. I'm doing one about. Um, why people can't test. And it's a nice little, um, just to offend all the religious people, um, a seven deadly sins theme to it of seven kind of obstacles that I've identified. Um, so I'm going to go into some detail about them in the talk. But for those who are coming to PHP Tech and want to learn a little bit more about Gopher, can you kind of give us like a little sneak, like a little uh, synopsis, a uh, too long didn't read version of kind of what you're going to be talking about um, with Go? Like what, what, is, what, what is that you're hoping to teach the PHP-centric folks? And it's kind of like what we were going back to when I was originally talking about Go on this podcast. As I was, I'm really just going to be using my hour to try and give people an introduction to Go from their like in the way that's best suited to working with PHP developers. So like here, from going from PHP to Go, here's what you're going to need to know. Here's the new concepts. Here's all of this stuff. But I really, I really just want people to walk away with another tool in their belt, another thing that they can use. I'm not trying to convince anyone that PHP is bad. Um, I'm not going to try and convince anyone to switch to Go instead. I just, I'm really envious of PHP's community. Go has a great community and I loved seeing everyone, but PHP has one of the best software communities I've ever seen. Um, and I think that's part of why PHP has endured so long. So I would very much like some of these people to have Go in their tool belt as well and perhaps, you know, be able to talk with me about Go as well. 
um, even in addition to PHP. I've heard that said a lot about PHP, that the language is terrible, but the community is awesome. And I can definitely agree to a certain extent about the horribleness of what PHP is. Um, but the community, yeah, that's the thing that keeps me um, still contributing and doing stuff is that the people that I meet and who want to talk about PHP, it's uh, it's it's very wide and diverse um, group of folks. And um, I never cease to be amazed at the people that I meet and the problems that you're trying to solve with PHP and um, how it seems like it's one of these things where people don't understand that there's a community out there. And then once they get uh, involved with it, they're like, wow, what was I waiting for? There are all these other people that are using the same tools that I am and can answer a lot of the same questions that I had. And um, I look at other languages, uh, communities around them too. And it's like, I see, I see a lot of that stuff in other languages. Um, uh, but the difference, I mean, one of the things I seem to find is that there seems to be a lot more PHP developers seem to use a lot more non-PHP tools than other communities uh, surrounding programming languages. A lot of them seem to be way more um, language-centric in that they want all their tools to be written in their language of choice, whereas PHP people are like, man, I need a tool to solve whatever. Oh, there's nothing in PHP. Oh, it's a Ruby thing? Cool. I'll, I'll add that into my stack because I need it to fix a problem. Right. Um, and actually, funny story, the first open source project I contributed to is actually at Spaz Project, oh, very um, nice. which is how I got to know all of these pe- great PHP people like Matt Turland and a bunch of other awesome PHP developers. Uh, and I met them through that, and that was my introduction to open source. And I think if I had gone to a Ruby or a Node.js project first, that my introduction to open source wouldn't have been as nice and welcoming. And I've written about this before, but I feel like that is why I'm such like so strongly in support of open source software and why I think the community is so important is because my initial reaction to the community was, yeah, we'd love to have you here. Not, Oh, you got to prove yourself first or, Oh, you know, you're new, go away. You're going to waste time. Um, so that's really one of the things from the PHP community that I think is special to the PHP community. I haven't seen that as much in other communities. You know, some of these communities like uh, just simply haven't been around long enough to kind of go through that um, maturity cycle because PHP as a language is actually quite mature and the community is quite mature. There's a, I mean, uh, I certainly I, I look at bios of people when I see them speaking at conferences and um, more and more I'm seeing you know people like I've been using PHP for ten years, seven years, eight years, and uh, um, and those people are enthusiastic. And sometimes when I look at other things, it's like, well, I've been using like you know. For example, for you look at something like Ruby, like some people are like, well, I've been a Ruby, I've been a Rails developer for a year and a half, and they're like super enthusiastic about their talks, and they're doing a certain level of enthusiasm, very similar to what I see at the PHP conferences. But it just seems like the people who are it seems to me the people who are sharing their ideas in the PHP community seem to be seem to have been at it a lot longer um, than some of the other communities. I find that kind of interesting that. PHP is uh, PHP devs are still sustaining their enthusiasm uh, over what appears to me, and maybe this is a self-selected thing, but appears to me over a, a much longer time frame than perhaps programmers and other communities. I mean, some of these tools, are, of course, are are um, a lot easier, and their and their widespread acceptance as a web-related tool, because those are the circles I run, in, has been a lot less than PHP itself as well. Yeah, that would make sense to me. Um... I think the Go community, I think that might be why I like the Go community so much as well, just because, like, a lot of these people have been at it for a really long time. Like, Rob Pike has been making languages since several times before I was born. Yeah. Um, so, 
I think a lot of these people have the maturity to say, you know what, we don't really know what we're doing. We know better than pretty much everyone else, but we don't even know what we're doing. We're all just making it up at this point. Come make up, like, come make things up with us. Um, and I think that's really encouraging to hear as a new, uh, like a new person in the group. Like one of my first introductions to go, I was asking about how templates work on that mailing list. And there's a Rob Pike explaining simply to me and like helping me understand and, that was an amazing moment for me because I was like, oh, God, this guy has his own Wikipedia page. Uh, Patty being starstruck. That's awesome. I know. It happens so often. Well, I mean, I, I get starstruck over too. I remember when I was at, when I gave my talk at, uh, I think it was, Sun- yeah, at Sunshine PHP, Rasmus Lairdorf wandered into my talk and I was talking about testing things. So that was, I will admit, I was like, okay, don't fuck up because Rasmus is here listening to you. So um, be strong, Chris, and, and get it going. And then there was that time you talked to me, and clearly that was the highlight of your life. Like, <laughs> well, for those 30 minutes when I was talking to you, it was the highlight. <laughs> Edward, are you still with us? I literally just I hit it wrong and muted myself right when you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> I could hear the kathunk, the, uh, blue, the, the, blue, the, blue, the blue yeti kathunk when you uh, unmute yourself. I know. If there's one design flaw this thing has, it's like, why would you make a loud mute button? Um, <laughs> you don't want to make any noise? Here, let's announce that as loudly as possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, no, no, I'm here. Um I, uh, Patty, I heard you might have a fun story or two about, uh, about going to Colorado. So let's, let's hear one of those. And oh, jeez, I'm, I'm going to go to sleep. My fun story about Denver. Uh, I was in Denver for GopherCon. Um, and I'm on my way back. I actually, if you don't, if you've never been to Denver, the cheapest way out of Denver is actually an UberX. Um, you would not believe it, but from downtown Denver to the airport, the cheapest possible way to accomplish that is an UberX, which blows my mind and is something horribly wrong with Denver's transportation. But, um, so I'm sitting on the side of the road waiting for my UberX to pull up and, you know, it's a couple minutes, whatever. And there's a convertible for full of young women my age who that just like, turns around the corner, pulls up on the street next to me, and one of the girls leans over and hands out this white piggy bank. And in this piggy bank is like a dollar and like 48 cents or some assorted change. And this young lady just re- uh, leans over, hands this out to me, and I just kind of stare at her because I was not quite expecting a convertible full of young women to pull up and hand a piggy bank out at me. Um, and she just kind of, you know, goes, here, take it hands this thing to me, I take it, she leans back into the car, and the car drives away, and that was the entire, like, scene. Like, there was no further explanation offered, no words exchanged, they drove up, they handed me a peggy bank, and they drove away, and that was how I left Colorado. That, that was it. That's, that's very, yeah, I, I don't know if there's a proper response to that either. That's kind of, I thought you were going to say because weed is legalized in, uh, in Colorado that you are handed like a flyer to go down to the local dispensary and uh, pick some up before you, uh, before you came back. I feel like the legalization of weed may have been involved, but, um, <laughs> no, I, I, to this day, I can't explain how or why that happened. It was just like a very bizarre experience that there it is. And I was like, oh. Uh, a little, okay. do- a, a little dose of serendipity. Apparently, like I don't even know what to call that. Yeah, I don't know either. Just 
Interesting. I think it's the only thing that we can call it. Bizarre. Uh, Bizarre. Yeah, is my so, word. Uh, yeah. So, Ed, anything else you wanted to talk about? Because we've been rapping for about an hour here, I think. Yeah, I think this is probably a good point to uh, tie a bow on it. I think so. So, uh, so for everyone listening, thanks so much for joining us. This has been episode number 44 of the Development Hill Podcast. And, Patty, so uh, thanks so much for coming on on relatively short notice, but I've been wanting to get you on for a while to talk a bit about Go. And, and as always, even though I troll you, it was really good to talk to you. Absolutely. It was great being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Totally uh, worth skipping Game of Thrones for. Oh, God. You can just, dude, we talked about this. You can just record it and watch it later. I've got HBO Go, but there I'm totally go. going to give you a hard time about yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so before we go, let's thank our sponsors. First of all, Engineer are one of our longest running uh, sponsors. Um, fine purveyors of Platform as a Service, one of the trailblazers in uh, Platform as a Service. If you like uh, running your uh, Ruby, uh, JavaScript, and PHP, thanks to the fine folks that used to work on Orchestra.io, like running your stuff in scalable sandboxes, I highly recommend you check out Engineer. And also let's thank our new sponsor, Rove. Uh, we'll do the blurb again. Um, Rove is a handpicked team of some of the most t- talented developers in the PHP community. Rove is a full-service web development firm offering services such as consulting, training, software development, and more. Rove employs some of the most recognized and accomplished experts in the industry to ensure that organizations have access to the talent they need when they need it. Website is at rove.com.com. R-O-A-V-E. And as always, Paul and Will from Wonder Networks, thank you so much for donating uh, bandwidth so that uh, people who are listening in the IRC channel can uh, hear us in real time. And who knows, we may have a very interesting uh, um, dev hell after dark if Ed can stay awake long enough. Um, so um, thanks very much. Oh, you can visit our website, devhell.info. Every single episode we've ever done uh, is available to listen along with show notes. Um, so we say check that out. We're also available via iTunes. If you listen to us via iTunes, please please, please remember to rate the show. And uh, that way we find out what's working, what's not working. Um, despite what people might think, we actually do listen to the comments and we, we try to make the show um, better every single time we come out. Um, you can find the podcast on um, on Twitter at dev underscore hell. You can find me, uh, Grumpy Programmer, without the U. You can find Ed as Funkatron with the U. Uh, you can find uh, Patty. I always forget because the, the stupid Twitter client never shows me. You're on Twitter. Is it Patty for an all one word? Yeah, and it's D's, not T's. The proper yeah. Irish way to spell d- it, d- which d- nobody ever gets. Yes. But. Patty, Patty Foran uh, on Twitter. Uh, so thanks very, uh, very much for joining us, and we'll see you all in about two weeks. Good night, Internet. Good night.